I don't know. I'm looking for Tom. I don't see him. How many of you guys know what deep fakes are? Deep fakes? Anybody? I know. Posted about this this week. So here's what a deep fake is. A deep fake is an advanced AI that stands for artificial intelligence. They can basically take a, a picture of you, a picture of your face, and turn it into a video that talks. They can get these videos to say whatever they want them to say. It's kind of scary, right? I mean, some of us are working hard to not have our information stolen. Well, it's too late, just so you know. They already know everything about you. It's pretty incredible because they've been able to do this with voices for a long time, auto-tune, but, but now, again, they can take a single picture. So I've seen this done. They've, they've, got, one, they've got an Obama one. They've got a Trump one. They've got, I've seen Ellen DeGeneres and other people. But they take a picture and they can put whatever words in the mouth of this person they want to on video. And here's the deal. You can't tell the difference. Oh, man. Like, I could tell the difference. No, you can't. You already believe way too many things you read on the internet. <laughs> okay, when they call you saying they're the FBI and need your social, that's not real either. But this is scary. We grew up, right? It, I mean, it looks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. It talks like a duck. It's a duck. Not so with these deep fakes. Might look real, might sound real, isn't real. And that's part of what Paul is doing here in this section of Romans. Again, I, I need to commend to us that Paul is writing a letter to people that he loves. To the children of God, those in verse 7, chapter 1, those who are saints of God, they're loved, they're called. And so when he goes into this whole deal from the end of Romans 1 up halfway through Romans 3, and he's talking about the, the universal problem of man's sinfulness, it's not because Paul's angry and he's not trying to beat us over the head with a huge 50-pound apostle Bible. What Paul is at here is for us to see with clarity the true gospel of Jesus Christ so that the people of Jesus Christ in the church might be united, so the church might be healthy, and as the bride of Christ, that she might give birth to the works of God in the world, so that all men and women might know that Jesus is Lord. That's why Paul is so averse to the deep fake versions of the gospel. Now, we talked about one of those last week. Paul addresses the sinfulness of Gentile nations and empires. He says, look, when man suppresses the truth, when you say, I'm God and stand in the place of God for your own power and your own pleasure, you initiate a process of moral decay and entropy that goes from heart to body to mind. And it's scary because God will give you over to that. You're not a robot. He won't coerce you. He will give you, in the end, what you want. But now Paul turns to the other side, and this is important, of the same coin. One deep fake version of the gospel that may even look and sound real is all grace and all happiness and all this, but no, no repentance. But another version is haughty, prideful religiosity that's good at being churchy and following the rules, but has no mercy and no compassion. And no power made perfect in weakness. So Paul uses this term. We heard it a few times. Oh man. And you get to thinking, well, that's not me. Wait, is that me? Paul, are you 
talking to me? And the answer is yes. So when you hear the word in our text, oh man, he, he kind of sets up this hypothetical person, this dialogue partner. But he uses, it's so interesting, the second person. So it's not just, oh man, other and distant over there. It's you, oh man. He doesn't do that in the last chapter when he's talking about the Gentiles. This time he turns and what does he see? Paul turns to himself. He turns to us. He turns to the church in Rome and there's a mirror as he turns around. And we see ourselves in the mirror. Paul is dealing with a problem in the church and for the church. The problem of passing judgment. The problem of being judgmental. And I'm just going to say, since I get to work on these texts all week, and they get to kick my behind all week, that this is a real problem for me. <laughs> this last weekend over Memorial Day, we were up north, and my in-laws have a little spot up there, and you know, it's small town community, everybody's really nice, it's some old time rancher folks, people get along, they're nice to each other, if you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. It's a long way to emergency services and police depots. So you just better be nice. Well, we're driving on one of the roads, and there happened to be a guy tooling around on his ATV who's he's not a local. He's not from there. He's kind of a hired gun, a little bit of a, you know, mall cop, let's just say. And he thought that we were on a road that we shouldn't be on. We thought we were allowed to be on that road. So he, and, you know, get the whole family in the ATV, he's... <laughs> pulls this thing almost right into us. And I'll tell you, thank God, I mean, I turn pages for a living, so I should never puff my chest out at anyone. But I mean, I felt my blood start to boil. And I'm so thankful for my father-in-law. You know, he's been out there 10 years, and he loves the community, and he just, he was very calm. He de-escalated de everything from this mall cop guy. But, you know, it, it was intense for a minute. And we drove away all the way back to his spot. It's about 15 minutes. We drove back in silence. And it was so funny where my heart went. Except for not funny, just sad. It went to two places immediately. The first place it went was, oh, is this your road? I thought it was my road. I'm going to call every lawyer I know. How about that? And we'll just call out all the lawyers and we'll figure out what the real rules are. So my heart goes straight to the law. But then the other part of my heart, that night, as, my, as I was still cooling down, that other part of my heart, as, as it got dark, was like, oh, that's cool. We can play. How about you just go to bed? Because I got black pants and a black shirt and a lighter. Just go to bed. Ball cop. Now, of course, I'm not an idiot. And, you know, nothing happened except for everybody taking a deep breath and all is well. But man, amazing where my judgmental heart went. And my father-in-law said, you know what? We got to love our neighbor. I said, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know that. <laughs> you know, he said, we just got to love our neighbor, man. We got to be respectful up here. I was ready to go straight to lawyers and matches in a matter of minutes. Being judgmental is a problem for us all. You guys know it too. You do. We judge people. Part of that's biological. We see people, we size them up. We size people up quickly. We pass judgment. We make decisions about how they're looked, how they're dressed, what car they're driving. 
And then sadly, what we frequently do is we write people off that we think are unworthy and undeserving, and then we keep people close to us that kind of, you know, on our same level. They're in our same demographic, same socioeconomics. They're one of the in crowd. So not only do we judge, but then we sentence people in the context of relationships to either being brought in or pushed away. We do that when we see someone on the street, when we see someone in need. Well, what's the problem, man? If you'd have just worked a little harder. You know, I read an article this week about, quote, millennials. And it really humbled me because sometimes I, you know, I even make jokes about, you know, oh, millennials. But this article, which was, you know, Harvard Business Review, talks about the economic situation that a lot of, quote, millennials came into after college. And it's not just that, that people are, you know, weak snowflakes. There are, there are real things that contribute to some of the psychology about why different generations are the way they are. Now, every generation needs to come to Christ and take responsibility. And part of what's beautiful about the church is, look at this room. We would never hang out together. We would never hang out together. Older, younger, white, brown, black. I mean, what do we have in common except for Christ? But what I'm saying, guys, is we got to be slow to pass judgment. Oh, those young people. Oh, those old people. Oh, those rich people. Oh, those poor people. No, oh man, be slow to judge. Because in the same way that you judge others, Jesus says, you will be judged. So this is a challenge to our souls. On top of that, I think for a lot of us, part of the reason we are so quick to judge is because we judge ourselves. Some of you hear about judgment and you go, you know what, I try to be really nice to everybody. But your internal critic, the voice of condemnation and shame and judgment in your own head is strong. And you have allowed and empowered that voice to speak things over you that are not true according to Christ. Sometimes the reason we're so quick to judge others is actually because of how judged we feel by ourselves. What's so interesting about the work that Paul does in this text is he says, look, don't churchify that by making it seem like humility. Judging others, judging yourself, woe is me, it's not humility. It's actually another form of false pride. It's a deep fake version of the gospel. Law without mercy, whether it's law for others or yourself. So here's Paul's main point in Romans chapter 2. By the way, most of the commentaries I read this week Take Romans 2 in like at least two, three, even four sermons. And I'm not going to do that to you. It's a huge passage. But I think there is, a, there is one theme that runs throughout, and it's this. Church, Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to us. Church, beware of unrighteous pride in judging God's people. Beware of unrighteous pride in judging God's people. That doesn't mean we shouldn't make judgments. Did you hear me say that? You're wrong. Back up off the ropes, mall cop. That's not what I said. We should make judgments. We should discern. We need to separate truth from error. I'm talking about unrighteous pride in judging God's people. So the main point is do not judge. But instead, judged and justified in Christ, be transformed into the humble. Do not judge, oh man. Be humble. 
And so for us to be humble, Paul must humble us. And that's where he begins in this text. A couple points here that he teases out. First this, oh man, and when you hear that, see your mirror. Paul's talking to us. Oh man, judgment is coming. You almost feel it from last week, right? Where Paul goes in on the Gentiles and rips them to part all these pagans, these crazy pagans with their false worship and their bodies and their hearts and this degradation and decay. And they suppress God's truth and they don't have God's law. They're not the chosen ones. You can almost feel the people in the church, especially the religious people, many of whom were Jews who had put their hope and trust in Messiah, Christ, Jesus, going, yeah, Paul, get them. Get them, Paul. Show them. And it's not just because they're bad people. Look, it was hard to be faithful to God in Rome. You could die every day. Someone you love could die. Or in fact, they could say, choose your God or that person you love. Every day. Persecution was real. This is a marginalized community. The Jews themselves are a marginalized ethnic community in Rome from the Jewish diaspora. This was a challenging place to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can almost feel them going, yeah, Paul, get them. We know they're unrighteous. We know that God is holy and righteous and just, and these pagans are just a bunch of wild, crazy animals. And just like Assyria fell and Babylon fell, Rome's going to get theirs too. And then Paul turns and says, but wait, oh man, wait, us too? Us too? I mean, they must have been thinking, us too? I mean, we're, we're the religious ones. We're God's covenant people. We were chosen. We were elected. Not because we had anything to boast about. I mean, there were these great nations in the ancient Near East, and God chooses this tiny little family, Abraham, to be a little wandering nomadic tribe of Semites meandering around, you know, what is now modern-day Israel. There was nothing that commended the Jews to the power and principality of the world, and yet they were God's chosen people. The children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had been led by Moses through the Red Sea, remember? The powers of Egypt were judged in the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, whereas God's people who walked by faith were led through those same baptismal waters into new life. And then they got the law, Torah. God spoke and revealed his character and his nature. The Old Testament is not a list of rules. It's not a legal textbook. God's law is a revelation of his love and his care for his people. Do this and you will live. I've saved you. Now live this way and flourish. This is the way that will bring you back to the flourishing of the garden and paradise will be regained. These are the people who go, we follow the rules. And Paul says, wait a minute. Presume not. Don't presume about your ethnicity. Don't presume about your calling and election. Don't presume about the law that's been revealed. Don't presume on any outward sign or seal of your being God's people. Presume on none of those things. Because Paul shows us in this text that the worst kind of pride is religious pride. And as I've said before, some of us, we, we need to begin a process of not repenting of our pagan Gentile unrighteousness because you're sitting there with your arms crossed going, I'm doing pretty good. You no, know, I don't get hammered. I don't hook up with 
girls, I, you know, I'm doing okay. I don't get out and you know, yell at the person in the Trader Joe's parking lot who deserves God's judgment. That's some, of, some of you, that is you. Paul says, no. We need to repent of our own righteousness. Religious pride is the worst kind of pride. And so Paul shows us here as he contrasts the Gentiles to the religious folks in the church in Rome that unrighteousness, covenant injustice, actually has two sides. Side one, end of chapter one, anti-righteousness. But side two, self-righteousness. And for church folks, oh man, for church folks, number two is the tough one. Self-righteousness. Paul goes on to say self-righteousness is unrighteousness. Again, this rich Old Testament word righteousness, it means covenant justice. It means that God not only keeps his promises, but does so in the world in a way where his justice is accomplished. And what Paul is saying to these religious folks is that as they walk around in pride and judgmentalism, they are literally harbingers of injustice in God's world. Because God has many people in Rome and God has many people in Santa Fe that he wants to draw to himself through the cross. And every little barrier, every little rule, every little regulation, every little inch of our chest being puffed out because we're good church people, every little step that's an extra step for a child of God to get to the cross of Christ is injustice in the eyes of God. And so we saw the pagans last week taking the place of God reveling in their autonomy, a law unto themselves. And Paul says, as you judge in religious self-righteousness, you do the same thing. We are not the ones who justify. We cannot declare anyone to be or not be in the right with God. And when we do with our actions, when we push them away, when, they, when we make them other, when we dehumanize people in that way, we are literally standing in the place of the judgment seat of God himself. And there is nothing that God will judge more harshly than that. Which is why for the pagans we heard last week that wrath awaits them in the last day. But for those suffering from religious pride, it's wrath and fury. So here we are, undone. Because the Jewish problem, and again, when I say Jewish, I mean those converts to Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, in the church in Rome, the problem is not being able to discern evil and good and right from wrong. And let me just say again, we need to do that. God's word gives us the ability. It says the scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for reproving us and rebuking us and turning us from those broken cisterns that don't satisfy to Jesus. We need to turn away from sin. We need to repent. I need to every day. And the older I get, the more I'm walking with Jesus. I need thee every hour. I'm like, is there a version that says I need thee every minute? Okay, we need to be turning away from that which does not satisfy to the Savior. But it was not a problem of discerning good and evil, truth and error. Instead, it was a problem of their declaring their religious superiority. So listen, it wasn't a truth issue. It was a love issue. It wasn't a truth issue. It was an issue of you know the truth, but if you are saved by grace, if you bring nothing to the table, but God has loved you and called you and chosen you and drawn you to himself, if his kindness 
leads you to these things. And how, how dare you then turn around, saved by grace, and put a, put a yoke of the law on the people around you who are struggling and not doing as well as you are doing. Again, that's what we do when we judge. We cut off the children of God from the power of the cross. And that's why God says to these religious folks, you better hear this, God does not have any favorites. You may have Abraham, you may have the covenants, you may have ethnicity and heredity and money, and you might have all, whatever you have, you have, but God has no favorites. And he will rightly judge in the last day. Paul then goes on to show them, oh man, religion is no protection for you. Why? Because God sees the things of the heart. That's the whole point of that middle piece of this section, that, that it's not about our religious trappings. There's no protection there. It's like walking out onto a battlefield with three sweatshirts on and going, well, nothing can penetrate these. You know, one sweatshirt, I'd be in trouble, but three, I'm fine. No, the bullets of God's righteousness can make it through as many layers of cloth as we're able to put on. Religion cannot hide you. And this is what Paul has for the religious people. Even you are lawbreakers. Verse 16 says, God knows not just what you do, but why you do it. God knows not just what you do in public, but what you do in secret. God knows the secrets of your heart. And so he, he has this, you know, this rhetorical refrain with his, you know, oh man that he's talking to. Do you do this and not do this? Do you do this three times? Do you do? And the point is, yes, we do. The Sermon on the Mount shows us why, right? Paul is just adding to the teaching Christ has already given us as he has perfectly interpreted God's law. Well, I don't steal. Okay, but how about wanting all the stuff you don't have? How about grumbling and complaining? Well, I don't commit adultery. Well, how about lust in your heart? I mean, I don't murder anybody. Yeah, but how about when you, you hate your brother? How about when you, you fantasized about, you know, the mall cop? I mean, it's all in the heart. So the law fully applied, not externally, but internally. It doesn't fix us. It actually exposes us more deeply. That should lead us humble and helpless and hopeless to Christ. Instead, so many times for religious people, it leads us to feel better about ourselves. So that if you've had a bad week, you come to church beating yourself up. And if you had a good week, you come to church feeling extra justified. If that's you, and that's often me, that's a picture of us struggling to actually believe God's grace for us. Religion cannot help us. Religion is, is a recipe. It's ingredients to bake a cake of hypocrisy. And that's what's going on here. People who look good and shiny, whitewashed tombs, they're dead inside. And how many of our friends that we know and care about, people we love in the city, they're not projects, we're not trying to say the right incantation so they, quote, get saved. We want them to know and experience the power of the living God and the love of Jesus Christ. But how many people do we know in Santa Fe that they're not turned off because they know Christians that are too licentious? They're not, they're not turned off because they know Christians that are taking grace a little too far. They're turned off because they've been burned by religious hypocrisy. 
And now they can't trust Christ because they can't trust that. It's not right, but it's true. That's because religiosity and judgmentalism and self-righteousness and our pride, they don't deal with the deep needs of our heart. That's why Paul says, look, God gave his people circumcision. It's now become a sign and seal that we give to our children through baptism, and thank God for that change. But circumcision, although it's external and physical, Paul says it's not really external and physical. It was always to be a signpost and a seal of an internal reality. Circumcision of the heart is what counts. And when we judge in our judgmental, we betray all the outward trappings. And yet not the very work of God that needs to be done inside. If we're not careful, all of our religiosity, all of our, our, our Bible studies and our knowledge and our going through the motions are nothing but, but Adam and Eve's fig leaves to hide us from the truth of the fact that maybe we haven't really encountered the true and living God. Because he, is, he who is forgiven much will forgive much. And that's the only way. So Paul then gives us some points of application. Oh man, be humble. Again, Paul's goal here is not to, you know, to yell at all the church people and beat them up and, oh man, I hope you have a great day now that you feel bad. Go enjoy your lunch. Go enjoy your lunch with a side of religious self-loathing. Thanks for coming to church. Come again next week, you know. This time, bring a bigger whip. We'll be back at it. That's not Paul's goal at all. Paul's goal is for both the religious and the irreligious, for the Jew and the Gentile, for those with history and heritage and pedigree and those with none at all to all be brought low at the cross so that they might all be united in Christ, so that they might be fruitful for Christ in the world and be loved by him and love him more deeply because that's all we have to give to our friends and our family. That's all we have to give is we are loved by the living God. Come and taste and see that he is good in the way that we love you. So a couple points of application. First of all, our lives still matter. This is the third time I've come back to this, so I will not answer an email on this question. Our lives still matter. How we live matters. Repenting of our sin. Repent just means it sounds really angry and yelling, but it's not. It means to turn away from selfishness that we all know doesn't satisfy, and to turn to the satisfaction we have for God for us and his son. Our lives do matter. Christians, little Christs, we're to be the ones who have a pattern of ongoing humble repentance. Confess, receive grace, repent, and repeat. That's the normal ongoing Christian life. Paul's goal with all the churches is to present them mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ is not having more knowledge about Jesus. This last week, I read at least one Bible scholar on Romans, who's one of the greatest Bible scholars in the world on the book of Romans. He's not a Christian. And he knows more about Romans than I will ever know in my entire life, and he, yet he knows less about Romans than our children know. It's not about more knowledge. It's about being humble. And humble means teachable. 
And teachable means that when we gather in this place, we say, okay, God, I'm not God, you are. You're holy, that's scary, but you're near, you're present, you're in flesh in Christ, I know you love me, your kindness is leading me, so do your work. Let me find my identity in you. Let me not be afraid. Even those parts of the Bible that that call sin that I don't want to call sin, I've got at least 10 or 8, maybe 10 to 20 parts of the Bible that I'd like to cut out. I don't know about you, but I don't get to. So God, when you gather us here, make us teachable. Of course, we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. But the faith that saves, the faith that saves responds to the revelation of God's good character through the obedience that he is due for his glory. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves, it's never alone. We're saved by faith, that's the seed, and Christ waters the seed and it grows. But true faith blossoms into lives, our lives, that that want to honor God. And where we struggle to honor God, we come to him, and he loves us, and he helps us. And that's why being judgmental is still a great and grievous sin. Proverbs chapter 6, the wise teacher of Proverbs says, there's six things that God hates and seven that are an abomination. When you say abomination, you have to say it in that voice. And guess what? Almost nothing that was mentioned on last week's list is mentioned in the book of Proverbs. Instead of those seven sins, which God through his word says are an abomination, a judgmental heart is the top of the list. Because if your heart is full of judgment, it's either you're either too prideful to receive God's grace or you haven't in the first place. Because you don't know what people are going through. You can't see what they're struggling with. That's why here's the practical application, church. We need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Not complain, not grumble, but go to each other. And you know, some of you guys, I'm so proud of you. I've said stuff, you know, you maybe you agree with some, you don't, you push back, but you don't keep it to yourselves. You come to me. That's what we're supposed to do, to give each other the benefit of the doubt, to walk a mile in one another's shoes, to listen to one another's stories. Because here's the thing, if you don't know someone's story, you will judge them. But the more you know of their story, the more you will, yes, discern right from wrong, but do it in a way that applies the gracious compassion of Jesus to wherever they are at in that story. So no more, if you're frustrated, do not write an email. I've done this so many times. If you're, if you're frustrated with someone, you don't write an email. In fact, I hate email. No more emails. No, I mean, email's fine. We're like, you know, setting stuff up. But how many times have we done this? Because we're afraid. We don't want to make peace in the way the Bible tells us, but we're a family. It needs to be face-to-face. So we must repent of our self-righteousness. And we must go to one another to be reconciled, just as they had to do in Rome. And lastly this, missions is still the goal. Paul says to these people, look, everyone will be judged. All this judgment talk that he's discussing, the thrust of it is the final day, the end of days, when God gives men that which what they wanted in their hearts. All will stand in judgment before the great white throne. All will be laid bare. And the only question is this, will we be judged in our own works, our own abilities, or in the finished work 
of Christ? That's the only question. Judgment will come for all of our deeds. But if we stand in the work of Christ for us, if we stand in the work of Christ for us, in his sacrifice, then truly as we sang, one little word can fell all the condemnation and all the shame and all the accusation of the devil. And that is because of Christ and not because of us, we are justified. This is what Paul longs for, for the church, for Rome and for us. Because Paul's goal is to get to Spain so the whole world might hear that there is a living God who through his kindness and mercy wants to lead them to a life of fullness and flourishing and satisfaction and grace. Paul is not trying to wow these people with a theology book. Romans is not Paul's you know, magnum opus, his systematic theology. It's a letter to people he loves saying, be healthy, be reconciled. Jews, Gentiles, poor, rich, all races, all peoples, be reconciled in Christ. So that as the bride of Christ, you might do the work that Christ has given you to do. Be fruitful and multiply that the nations might know that I am the Lord. And there's nothing deep fake about that gospel. It humbles the prideful, but then brings them to the mercy of God. And it takes the broken and the wounded and the powerful and those pursuing pleasure and says, you know those things don't satisfy. Come and drink the living water of Jesus, your Lord. His mercy is more, we sang. His kindness leads us. The Father is tender to save. So let us, church, let us not judge. But let us be humble. Let us have all things in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. And Father, these things are challenging for me to hear. Just seeing how quickly my heart goes to either protecting myself behind the law or being angry, feeling thoughts of condemnation, vengeance, and judgment. Lord, protect us from false gospels, from deep fakes. They look real, they sound real, but protect us from this this all lovey-dovey, no repentance thing, but protect us also, Lord, from our own self-righteousness and religious pride. From all law without mercy, no. No, we, we want the true gospel. We want to know that, Jesus, you are both just and the justifier. You are the one of perfect covenant justice, promise-keeping for us. You bore our judgment on the cross, and you have risen for our new life. So that now, by grace, through faith, we don't have to, but we want to live a humble life of obedience, that we might complete the mission of the kingdom that you have in store for us. God, we want to see your power in our lives. We want to see your power among our friends and family and in this city. So may we be brought low at the cross, but exalted in your power. We pray you would do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.